says this, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Please be seated. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the minds you've given us. Thank you for eyes to see and ears to hear. And thank you for your Holy Spirit's work and your help as we spiritually discern what you have for us today from your holy scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen. So the setting is this. Paul is writing a letter. A letter to the church at Philippi, the Philippians. Paul has started out by giving thanks for them. Then he's given a missionary update. They supported him and they knew of his mission to go around and take uh, the the gospel to Gentiles. Uh, You have churches where Jews and Gentiles alike came to the Lord and and they they, uh, knew him and they heard the gospel The Philippians themselves were a church he had started. Then he spoke of his own situation. And he talked about uh, how great it was that God, though God had stopped the mission uh, that he had planned, God had put him in a place where even people that would not have heard the gospel were hearing it. And he spoke of the possibility of dying for his faith. And he said this in both circumstances so far in this letter to the Philippians. He said, isn't it just like God to take what looks like a bad situation and turn it into the best situation? Isn't it just like God to take what looks like a bad situation where I'm stopped from sharing the gospel the way I planned and turn it into the very best? And with my own life, isn't it just like God to take a bad situation, my pending execution, and turn it into the best situation? To live as Christ, to die as gain. And so that's a tone throughout the letter. It's something for Christians to think about. Isn't it just like God to take what looks like a bad situation and turn it into the best situation? And so he's turning his attention now in this letter, as we would do if we were writing an old-fashioned letter. We're talking about uh, the person. We're talking about the situation. And now we've got some words of wisdom. He was the one designated to give them advice. It's like if my dad sent me a letter, or your parents, or, or somebody, who was a, uh, somebody who was placed in this earth to guide you. Let's say I write you a letter. Uh, let's say uh, you get a letter from an old pastor. Let's say you hear from somebody. Well, all of a sudden they've got something to help you. And you listen. And he's turning to them and he's saying, now I've got some words for you, church, 
who I love. And he's turning his attention on instruction and exhortation to these Christians. His tone is still the same with them. Isn't it just like God to take what looks like a bad situation and turn it into the best situation? This is what God does. And so he's talking about the manner of life prescribed to them. And as Paul is writing this letter to that church, we can say because God included this in his scripture. Uh, These are words of advice given to us through time. Paul is writing to us as God breathes out these instructions. And we need to take to heart what a little church does in times of distress globally and how a church is to live. How are the people that make up the congregation of Christ the shepherd to live? What's the advice for us? Three points this morning. First point will be the exhortation to a worthy walk. Second will be particulars of the worthy walk. And the third is a reminder that God is in the details of the worthy walk. First, what does it mean? If you, if you see the Bible, see the, the, this text that we have this morning, Philippians 1.27, the first part of that verse. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, dot, dot, dot. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. He's telling us to walk worthy. Now in the text, he's writing in the plural, your manner of life, not individually. We tend sometimes as Christians to take these words and because it's a very personalized culture and we think that we are still uh, in the driver's seat, so to speak, of our Christian life, we, we take this as personal. I need to let my manner of life be such and such. But he's writing to individuals comprised of a church. Let your manner of life, you plural, you congregation, he's addressing a church doesn't mean that, uh, it does mean this, it means there is an explicitly Christian manner of life, but it doesn't mean that we walk in absolute lockstep in the most minute details of life. It doesn't mean that every single person has to do every single thing. We don't all dress the exact same way. We don't have our hair cut the exact same way. We don't uh, have an approved list. We only watch this show and this this program where we don't do the exact same things in every little minor detail. Paul and I were quite surprised one time. Uh, Our kids actually were quite surprised. They had hung out with some other kids from the church we were at. And they were talking, let's watch a movie. And there was, the kid says, our parents won't let us watch that. And they said, well, so they suggested, well, they said, our parents won't let us watch that, but they'll let us watch this. Even in parenting, there are things that we do in a godly way that we look at, at certain things. And, and so I'm not saying every one of us has to do the exact same thing. Vote the same way. Drive the same car. Be interested in the same things. But there are principles and there are things that Christians as a congregation are told to do. And there are some principles for a church when we're together as a church doing God's work. 
we do them the same. There are Christian things that do apply to all. Godly people can differ in things. But here we're talking about some particulars of a church. Your manner of life. Do we consider our manner of life or do we just live sometimes? The Bible says there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is the way of death. Uh, We need to be thinking about how we live. Uh, This book that we're going through uh, in our men's group and uh, meeting with a couple of of, of men uh, via Zoom and and all talking about it, uh, there is a way to live. God didn't just save you to just go on the way you were. Justification is connected to sanctification. There's a way to live and a way that God wants us to live. Uh, One of the church fathers said, we're saved by faith alone, but not the faith that is alone. Saved by faith alone, but not the faith that is alone. When God saved us, he saved us and brought us, he justified us. Our sins were forgiven when Jesus died as our substitute on the cross. But there's a a new life that we were called into, and we live that life. He says, as you consider your manner of life, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. What does it mean to be worthy of the gospel of Christ? You know you were spiritually dead. We were doing what was right in our own eyes. And God in his love brought us back to spiritual life. We were adopted into God's family. There was a a change. Once I was blind, but now I can see, the scripture says. And we're adopted into God's family. And now, as part of this family, there's a way that God's family is to live. The gospel. Worthy of the gospel of Christ Jesus. What does gospel mean? Talk about the gospel. I was listening to, um, uh, there's a show I like on, on uh, it's a baseball, of uh, the Negro Leagues, the, the, uh, called Black Diamonds. And it's stories of, of what went on in the Negro Leagues. And they were talking about one uh, player, uh, one, one man, Buck, um, Buck O'Neill, I believe was his name. I keep wanting to say Buck Showalter, but he's the manager of the Mets. But Buck O'Neill. And he lived, and the man who was talking about his life and how he set up the museum in Kansas City of the Negro Leagues, and it talks about uh, the things that escaped our notice. And the man talking about Buck O'Neill kept saying, and he just had the, he preached us the gospel of the Negro Leagues. It was the gospel, the gospel. And I thought, is he, is he using that word wrong? But no, he's not using that word wrong. Gospel means good news. Uh, When we're talking about it in the Bible, it's talking about the good news of Jesus Christ. And we're talking in our sense about the gospel. Be worthy of the gospel. Jesus Christ is the Savior, the great high priest, the Messiah. And when you came to him in repentance and faith, he didn't roll his eyes and go, oh, not her, not you. He said, whoever comes to me, I will receive Whoever comes to me, all that the Father gives me are mine, and I will in no wise cast them out. You were here by God's loving design and plan, and you're part of it. And now as you are part of that gospel of Christ, part of his church, you live worthy of that. You live worthy of that name. He received you, and your essence was altered. 
You left the broad path that was leading you to destruction, and you went the opposite way on the narrow path that's leading you to heaven. You ask yourself, okay, what does it mean to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ? Well, if you're saved, you're a daughter of the king. How does, how does a king's daughter live? Different than she lived before. You're God's child. There are protocols. There are things you do that accompany your status. You've got a family name to live. And Paul is writing to this church and he's saying, listen, I'm here possibly going to die for my faith. I'm here saying God takes bad situations and turns them into these great things. But you also, how do you live as a congregation? A practical point for us then is to ask ourselves, what will please God in this particular situation? What do I do today? Somebody wrote a book called What to Do on Thursday for Christians. It's not just Sunday, but what do you do on Thursday morning, Christian, when you're getting up and ready for work and and you're driving there and you're interacting with people? How do you represent God in that way? I wrote this. If you honestly think that God wants you to belittle your spouse or crush the spirit of your children, then by all means, re-examine your understanding of Scripture or re-examine your Christianity. Uh, How does God want me to treat my husband? How does God want me to treat my wife? How does God want me to respond to my boss? How does God want me to uh, deal with those who have to answer to me? What's my response like? Uh, There is a way that we are told uh, to live. And Paul said, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. What does the world do? Well, Jesus said to some in the world, he said, you're of your father of the devil. You're of your father, the prince of lies. Uh, what's the, the standard operating procedure for most in the world? Well, a good rule of thumb is do the opposite. You are called from death to life, and we're called to live as Christians. If you're going to have a manner of life that is worthy of the gospel of Christ, live the opposite. So he talks to them as a church congregation, as individuals that make up this one body, and he says, walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. So that whether I come and see you or whether I'm absent, I may hear that you're standing firm. There are times when we're tempted away. But he's saying consistency. Living it in good times and bad times. It's easier to live for God when things are going right. It's tougher when things are going wrong. He gives them the particulars of the worthy walk. The last half of verse 27 and verse 28. He says, let me hear that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Three things. One, standing firm in one spirit. It's uh, 
Greek word, it's the word stako, from a word called histemi. It means to stand. Paul uses that word stand a lot. How you stand. Uh, how are you standing? He says this in Romans 14.4. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It's before his own master that he stands or falls. And if he will, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Galatians 5.1, he uses the same word again, talking to a different church. But he says, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. He's saying, you stand. How do you stand? And he's talking to this church. He's saying, stand in one spirit. Stand united. You stand firm in that one spirit. Then he gives another instruction that is like it, but but it goes a little further. He says, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Some translations translate this contending together for the faith of the gospel. Another Greek word, uh, he uses the word soon or sync. It's like synchronize. It's syn athleo is how it's uh, is, is how it's uh, pronounced uh, in ours. Sin or su- soon uh, is a Greek preposition meaning with or together. Like we say, let's synchronize our watches. That's sin. That, or we talk about getting synergy. Uh, that's the preposition. So he's saying church together, soon, with each other. And then probably it's easy to understand or, or even we, we can make a, a good guess and we'd all be right. The athle- athleo, sin athleo. Uh, we're talking about the athletic. Second uh, Timothy, he uses that word athleo. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. He's talking about standing together, synchronizing together. He's saying the church has got to be together. It was Jesus who first said, uh, um, a house divided against itself cannot stand. Abraham Lincoln came during a terrible time in our nation's history uh, on a battlefield uh, that had been strewn with, with people whose lives had been snuffed out in, in the heart of war. And he says, listen, a house divided against itself cannot stand. Synchronize. A church divided against itself cannot stand. A denomination against itself cannot stand. Um, that's absolutely true. You've got to be together for the gospel's sake. Synchronizing. Synathletico. There was a Pitcher, throw a baseball illustration in here, or we'll throw a Pirates illustration in. Rick and Caleb and I went down to watch the doubleheader at, at, uh, in New York this week, and that was a lot of fun. And uh, Caleb paid attention to every single inning, and that was, that was pretty good. Well, the Pirates, the Pirates uh, played the Reds maybe a week and a half ago. And a Reds pitcher did something that uh, doesn't happen very much, maybe five or six times a season. Uh, this Reds pitcher pitched a no-hitter. Didn't give up a hit. He gave up some walks, and maybe there was an error. He pitched a no-hitter. And this has only happened once or twice in the history of baseball. He pitched a no-hitter and lost to the Pirates. Uh, It's not talking about individual. It takes a a team. Paul is saying it takes a team together. One person can be a superstar, so to speak. One person can have a really good day. But he's saying you stand and you contend together together for the faith of the gospel. And what are you contending together for? What is that gospel? That's where the rubber meets the road. That's what 
unites us and must unite us as Christians is the faith of the gospel. We talk about other things. We talk about, uh, uh, have what we call our intramural debates, and we have some, some things that, that uh, maybe good people can look at it and, and look at it godly, and they can say, I'm a little different in the way Scripture says this. I'm a little different, and we can reform and be reforming. But man, what we cannot be at war over is what is the gospel. You stand for the faith of the gospel. And he says, not frightened by anything by your opponents. This has already been implied with his word, synathleo, that there are opponents. If there's an athletic field, there's, there's, there's opponents. And he's saying, listen, there are opponents in the world. Not frightened by them. Maybe they were frightened by what was happening to Paul. Maybe we are frightened when we look and we see uh, restrictions coming on churches being able to assemble. Maybe we're a little nervous about restrictions on what you can say and can't say and, 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 and somebody else setting up some uh, decider of what's true or not true. We see it in other countries. Uh, we're nervous. He says, not being frightened in anything by your opponents. We don't know exactly what they would have been frightened of. Of course, they would have seen Paul. Uh, this guy, Moises Silva, who I, who I like a, a lot and has been, been helping me through this, wrote this. Whether the Philippian church was experiencing opposition from the pagan environment is difficult to prove. Because elsewhere in the letter, Paul appears to be greatly concerned about Judaizers. It's reasonable to assume that the same group or a similar group is primarily in view here as well. In any case, the struggle is real and likely to intimidate any believer. What he's talking about is whatever the scary opposition is to the gospel. And he's saying, stand together. Stand firm in one spirit. One mind striving side by side for the face of the gospel and not frightened anything by those opponents. And finally, he takes us as they were nervous as we may be as we look at how things are looking these days. He says, God is in the details of that worthy walk. It's one thing to say, do this as a Christian. Here's what a Christian does. But if you're doing it without God, how can you, how can you even hope to succeed? He's saying, God is in the details of the worthy walk. Verses 29 and 30. For it has been granted to you that for, sal- that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. He says faith is a gift. It's been granted to you. Faith is a gift from God. But he's saying also, and this This does not make sense to us from an earthly human perspective. It's been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. I'd rather think of suffering as an accident. I'd rather think of suffering as something that is not not part of God's uh, oversight. But if I start to think about that, then I start to think maybe God fell asleep at the switch and maybe God isn't really God. 
And so Paul, throughout Scripture, uh, Paul and others talk about how the suffering is actually something as a gift from God. That's hard to understand, but the Bible says that. It says the relationship between the two verses, one man wrote, may be brought out by a paraphrase. And here's a paraphrase of this verse. The conflicts that you are experiencing may appear frightening and thus threaten to discourage you, but you cannot allow that to happen. Perhaps you are tempted to interpret these conflicts as a bad omen, as though God is displeased with you and intends to destroy you. But that is exactly wrong. You must interpret what is happening as evidence of God's design to save you. Why? Because suffering is the way to glory, God's gift of salvation for his children. If God is who God says he is, if what kind of a God is he? God says he's good. Jesus told us about God. Jesus said in Luke 11, 9 through 13, And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? What kind of a dad is that? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So we know this from the Bible. God gives good gifts to his children. We know this, God gives faith. And here it says explicitly, God gives opposition and suffering. It's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, that's, that's good, but also suffer for his sake, that's also good, according to this text. The best example we know of, that we can look at, of suffering being good would have to be Jesus' opposition and suffering. We know how that worked out, don't we? Worked out good for us that Jesus suffered and saved. Worked out good for the Father who was glorified. It worked out good for Jesus the Son who brought many sons to glory. Oh, his, uh, his approach as he was approaching this ultimate suffering in, in Gethsemane He said, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And we say the same thing when we see it coming. God, spare us. God, I see this coming. God, if it's possible, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And in the very next sentence after Jesus prayed that prayer in Gethsemane, there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And There's an angel from heaven strengthening us. We get strength even in our suffering. We are not walking through it alone. And Paul says, God takes what looks like the bad things and turns them into the best things. And that's where he's at in this letter. How do we respond to this? How do we apply it to us as a congregation? Well, for one, it's a reminder for us to live as Christians in our individual lives and as a congregation. We are told, walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Evaluate our week. Is my week 
worthy of the gospel, pleasing to God, thought, word, and deed in all things? Where did I blow it? I certainly did. Have I gone to God and sought forgiveness? How bad was the setback? Did it cost me even a couple of days where I was uh, embarrassed to pray to God because it's the same old sin and I, and I can't... Uh, how? What are some steps I can take and are taking uh, to live worthy of the gospel? When the Bible says in Psalm 39.6, Surely a man goes about as a shadow, surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. It's speaking of people in their natural state. The old King James used to say, Surely everyone walks in a vain show. That you're different. You're a Christian. And the show you're walking in now and this act you're playing now is not uh, the same old act. You're a Christian. And it's good to be reminded of that. And it's good that Paul reminded that church and good to be reminded ourselves as we look at the text this morning to let our lives be worthy of the gospel of Christ. As a congregation, what do we do? We take to heart the unity that is urged. We are part of a team that God has called and put together. We live and die together. Ben Franklin allegedly said as he was getting ready to sign uh, the Declaration of Independence, we must all hang together or assuredly we will all hang separately. And God calls us to be together. Uh, it's not just the Lone Ranger Christian. It's a church. And he raised up local churches to be part of the universal body of Christ. Some of the suffering that we're looking at uh, isn't necessarily Christian specific. I heard an interview with a guy. He was a, two good things about him. He was a farmer. He was a farmer from Iowa. That gives credibility. Farmer from Iowa says, you know what? The way prices are going, where everything's going, another thousand bucks a month uh, for groceries if something doesn't change. Uh, that's not just for Christians. You don't walk in and say, you're a Christian, you pay higher. That's universal what's coming as people realize and deal with how they're going to do things. So it's, some of the suffering isn't Christian-specific the inflation, the crime rates, the general lethargy, the anger that's stirred up uh, over and over again in various peoples. It's going to affect us all. But he's saying, listen, you be ready to help each other in that time. Some will specifically be targeted toward Christians who live as Christians. The Hope Line people sent out, these young ladies who are doing what they can to show a heartbeat and to save lives, sent out a um, message saying, pray for us. Violence is happening in various organizations like ours. We exist to help. We exist to share the gospel. We exist to, to keep that beating heart beating. But we're under a threat and we're afraid. You can go to your search engine and I Google the Nigerian college student, the young woman who was killed for her faith in Jesus on that campus and read a story and say these things happen, and they're happening. And he's saying, stand together, stand firm. Strive for the gospel. 
We don't want churches to be places where just, uh, as, one, as one guy who used to, I used to listen to his sermon, he'd say, I don't want to just preach sermonettes for Christianettes. There's something real, something happening that's going on in the world. There's life and death and there's heaven and hell and there's a, a lives that are, that are saved and, and lives that are lost and, and there's, it's real. We can't just be a, a good old cultural Christian anymore. Real people are on a course for hell. Does that mean anything? Should it? Are we in a position to somehow be used by the Lord in the cause of something much bigger than ourselves? How do we live for God? And, and what Paul is saying to these Philippian believers as he talks about his own suffering, he says, live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ, the gospel, the good news, that people can be saved, that their sins can be forgiven, that there is spiritual life instead of spiritual death. And then he says, take comfort knowing this, God is in control of all things. Start to finish when Jesus came to earth, God was in control of that. When it was time for Jesus to be born, Jesus was born. When it was time for Jesus to begin his ministry, Jesus began his ministry. When it was time for Jesus uh, to be arrested and persecuted and go to the cross, God was in charge of that. No surprises. And so we have a loving God, we have a solution, and and a way we're going that's going to be fine. In the meantime, we get to do good things, and stand together for the sake of the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for transforming those people in the Philippian church. Thank you for what you've done in our lives of bringing us from death to life. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the empty tomb. Thank you for the ascension into heaven, and thank you for the return. And we thank you for everything good you give us in this life uh, that's just a picture of what's to come. And when everything uh, that's not so good in this life, Lord, we thank you that uh, there's a place where you are preparing for your people, for us, where those things don't exist, where tears are gone, where sins are gone, where we worship together the risen King. In Jesus' name. Amen. Paul said in Corinthians, as he's explaining what Jesus established on the night.